Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the post-skinny bill podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on July 31st, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined, of course, by my co-host, the Anthony Scaramucci of podcasting. Oh, <laughs> Nick, unfair. I lasted more than 11 days. Uh, this is Frank Pesquale from the University of Maryland School of Law, Baltimore, Maryland. You be careful, because the, mo- <laughs> the mooch may be looking for a new gig. so a quick reminder it only takes a moment to go to itunes and rate the show though after that you probably won't want to but if you do have the moment it uh, really helps us out if you uh, review and comment on the show so uh, this week on twill we welcome back two excellent guests Uh, aaron kesselheim and amit sapatwari are the director and assistant director of portal the program on regulation therapeutics and law in the division of pharmacoepidemiology and pharmacoeconomics Department of Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Together, separately, or with other collaborators, they're producing some of the most interesting contemporary research on innovation, regulation, and cost issues surrounding prescription drugs. Huge welcome back, gentlemen. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, Nick. Pleasure. Thank you so much, Nick and Frank. We've had multiple conversations on the pod about healthcare prices and healthcare costs and various state transparency, narrow network, surprise billing laws that are being discussed. We had a great conversation uh, with Wendy Epstein the other day about uh, using some contractual models and uh, nudging insurers on that. So let me start with a very general question. To what extent are drug cost issues the same as general healthcare cost issues? Or is there some differential? Yeah, I mean, I I would say that uh, there are a lot of similarities between drug cost issues and other healthcare issues. I mean, as with other sectors, uh, healthcare uh, drug costs are going up uh, in recent years. I would say that the drug costs, um, by some measures, are increasing at a higher rate. than other healthcare measures, um, you know, drug costs are make up about 20% or so um, of overall healthcare costs right now. Which is to say that you know they're an important part of healthcare costs, but they're also um, not all of the all of the issues related to healthcare costs in the in the U.S. Um, you know, I would say one way, a few ways that they're different um, is that, uh, you know, prescription drug costs, um, unlike a lot of other healthcare costs, are, m- you know, more directly felt by patients um, because e- either because of the way that drug insurance is structured or because, you know, some patients actually don't have um, pharmaceutical insurance uh, th- th- as part of their as part of their benefits. Um, and also because, you know, I- again, in-, in contrast to a lot of other aspects of uh, the healthcare system, uh, pharmaceutical uh, prices. Are, are protected by a lot of government um, regulation and law in terms, you know, with patents and other uh, regulatory exclusivities that give pharmaceutical companies monopolies on the market um, that allow them to charge uh, the high prices for their for their brand name drugs, and that obviously is also in, in contrast to a lot of other other parts of the healthcare system. So I think in some ways they're they're similar, um, you know, and, and can be thought of in similar ways. The things that lead to this sort of ma- misaligned incentives that lead to um, high uh, spending uh, in other fields is you know can also be found in, in pharmaceutical in the pharmaceutical areas, but in other ways there there are some important differences. I'll agree with Aaron there. I think that in in the respect that they're similar, I think that it's important to recognize that you still have a situation with pharmaceuticals as you do in a lot of healthcare, where the person who who chooses doesn't pay, and in that sense uh, you've got the mis- the misaligned incentives uh, that are something to be worried about. But uh, as Aaron 
mentioned in terms of this issue of protections that are being offered. It's not just on the range of patents, but also in respect to the ability of certain payers to decide what they will or will not cover um, and how much negotiation is actually possible. And so in that respect, it's an important difference and perhaps one of the reasons why we see um, pharmaceutical prices rising faster and spending on pharmaceuticals rising uh, greater than spending in other areas of healthcare. The two sort of ways you can attack costs are to attack the volume, the level of utilization, or attack the price. And we see some volume models in our current system. I, I think in, in your 2016 New England Journal piece, you talked about um, how Medicaid or some states would increase eligibility requirements on particularly expensive drugs to sort of limit it to certain conditions or certain patients. So there are some volume plays. But it looks like most of what you're talking about these days and what we're talking about are more direct and indirect attacks on prices. I think that there is a little bit of both. I mean, I think that, you know, there are certainly a lot of uh, a lot of areas one can mention where high cost uh, brand name drugs are prescribed unnecessarily. You know, we've had a, an issue uh, in the last few years with regard to, you know, overuse of, of opioid drugs. And, uh, you know, for a long time, you know, there were brand name opioid drugs that were, you know, where, where, where marketing and other and other practices were leading uh, physicians to over-prescribe them. And, and, you know, so I think that there are ways that, that better physician education can, uh, uh, you know, about proper prescribing practices and evidence-based prescribing and trying to develop proper evidence to guide uh, you know whether or not a, a drug, a particular drug, is the right choice in in one in a one case versus you know non pharmacologic therapies or other approaches. I think that you know those those kinds of interventions are sorely needed and can help address overall spending on on some on some prescription drugs. But you know I think that you know that's uh, I think that when most people are talking about policy changes, at least in recent years, yes, I think that that it, it's it's mostly in relation to the um, to the price of the product. Uh, that, that people are talking about. And just to echo that, that comment and add a little bit more there is just the notion of where we're particularly concerned about issues of volume and while we are focused largely on price, but the issue of volume will be, um, I think, of, of particular importance now as we see commercial speech protections sort of fall by the wayside or actually increase um, and thus the ability to regulate uh, off-label promotion, the, the notion of there being prescribing and utilization in cases where the evidence is not really there for the usage um, is going to be of concern. But right now, we generally have a situation where what we are paying for for a lot of products is is, is uh, out of reason in terms of what we think generally is a reasonable price. And we can discuss what methodology we're using to determine that. But generally speaking, a lot of the reforms right now are focused on pricing. You know, I have some questions about sort of ways of controlling drug prices uh, both direct and indirect that I want to get to eventually. But you're mentioning that, Ami, about the methodology, I think would be something that would be just great for us to get into 
now near the beginning of the podcast because I'm sure it's on a lot of listeners' minds. And I remember reading something in uh, Stat News earlier last week on value-based purchasing of medicine, and it mentioned you know the very difficult choices we might make between, say, a drug that gives someone a year of life, but they're stuck in the hospital for that year, as opposed to something that gives someone uh, three months of life, but you know, is relatively uh, unencumbered by uh, an apparatus of healthcare, etc. And so I'm wondering if you could discuss, you know, especially given that um, your 2017 uh, JAMA article about New York talks about how it auth- the New York became the first public payer to authorize limits on prescription drug costs based on their therapeutic benefits, um, how that measure of therapeutic benefit is done and, and where uh, we might reach what uh, I think either Uwe Reinhardt or Alan Enthoven called the flat of the curve care, where the price is going up, but the uh, benefit is not going up commensurately. That is precisely the, the question that needs to be addressed and we need to have more public dialogue on is what is the price we should be paying for drugs and what is a fair price for drugs and I think there are people out there who, who tout value-based pricing and what they mean um, and depending on who the actor is means different things so the umbrella of uh, of the value of what a drug provides can be viewed differently in some contexts it's in terms of what its cost effectiveness would be so really how much bang for the buck does it give us in terms of the the quality adjusted life years that we're getting um, in some contexts you can take that further and you can say well with regard to what else what is the comparative cost effectiveness of the product um, will we really need to be concerned about opportunity costs if we have a fixed pot of money and we can spend it on this or we can spend it on this new drug what should we be doing um, and then there are some people who say well you know part of what is a fair price doesn't really even incorporate value per se it's there's this notion of ethical fairness and it's it has some capacity and a lot of these transparency laws seem to be focused on this um, which is what did the company actually do to produce this drug if this drug was developed 90% with NIH funding and then the company really just took it over the line what is uh, what should they be able to charge for this product and in that case there are some people out there who say well maybe it's not so much about the value the drug provides, but the effort and resources that went into its development. At least that should be a contributing factor in terms of the overall price, or at least the government should, in those situations, have some say. So that, I guess, is is sort of an issue that goes to the Vermont statute, for example, which sort of tried a transparency model, bringing in questions of R&D costs and so on. And when I read the the stuff you've written about that, I I was reminded of of the problem that um, artists get when they try and get their percentage cut from uh, Hollywood studios, the back end, because it's absolutely impossible to ever find out what a movie actually costs to make. And so the operational problems of any of these transparency models struck me as maybe making them non-starters. Am I being too harsh there? I think you're asking the right 
question, Nick, and I, I think personally it might be a little bit harsh in my view, but I think the criticism is fair in that there are complications in terms of how do we decide what was the effort expended. And we know that the vast majority of products that are being uh, investigated in drug companies are going to fail. So how do we account for that failure? And do we say for an Alzheimer's drug account for failures in a pipeline of uh, diabetes products? Should we account for all failures in terms of what a manufacturer um, is developing? And I think that uh, there, there are some complicated questions, but I think it is perhaps a bit too strong of a criticism to say that there's no way to account for that or that it is a, a fruitless uh, endeavor. In that sense, I, I think that what we really need to know is a better sense of what these drug companies, how they are spending their money and um, accounting for a reasonable risk of failure. And in that sense, I think that we can structure um, things that would be sought from these transparency bills in a better manner. So if I could jump in on something that I think is really interesting on the opposite side, right? So I guess one side would be trying to think about reasonable rates of return on levels of investment. And you know, that, that even brings us back to utility rate regulation, going back to like the work of Robert Lee Hale in the early first half of the 20th century, which I think is one very promising route to go down. On the other end, there's the question of reasonableness that comes from benchmarking against, if not the patient's income and wealth, then the, say, overall spend of a healthcare system. And this is where I found it so fascinating in your uh, JAMA piece, where it's described this uh, New York is relying on the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, the ICER, that will assess value-based drug pricing, and there will be rebates um, on therapies like um, hepatitis C therapies, which have you know, got a lot of attention the news that will essentially be rebates that will uh, keep overall per member per month cost increases below 1%. And I'm wondering if if either of you could comment on that as a potential strategy, not necessarily saying, well, we're going to uh, give you a reasonable rate of return on amount invested, uh, thanks to the complications that Nick talks about, and you know, other contestation of things like the Tufts study based on uh, estimates of cost of capital, etc., that are endlessly contestable, but that instead look at how you would uh, limit costs by thinking about what's a sustainable level of overall cost growth for the system that has to pay for these drugs. Does that seem to be the wave of the future now? Well, I don't, I don't know about a wave of the future necessarily, but it, I think it is an important factor to take into account because, um, you know, I think, and I think the hepatitis C drugs are a very uh, instructive example here because, you know, if you take a, uh, a 30 or 40 year time horizon with the hepatitis C drug at their, you know, extremely elevated prices, they are in fact cost effective because the you know, liver transplants or whatever else that you're avoiding, you know, so many decades down the road are extremely costly. Um, but I think the fact is, is that, you know, we need to be concerned about how payers are going to pay for these products now. And because we have a um, fractured healthcare system where, um, you know, the, the people who are getting the, the drugs now, you know, be it through Medicaid or through the, or through, 
through a you know, state prison uh, system, you know, are, are not necessarily going to be the same payers who are going to be paying for the drug, who are going to be paying for care later. You know, the, this this ability to take this 30, 40 year time horizon into into account, your cost effectiveness breaks down and you have to think about, well, how does this cost fit into current day budgets and how is the state Medicaid system going to weigh, it needs, how can it weigh paying for this important new therapy with all the other things uh, that it has to do? And, and I think that that's what the, the people at ICER, you know, when they're making their um, very, you know, sort of calculated, uh, thought out cost effectiveness analyses and, and trying to come up with what a, what a value-based prices for a drug are, are trying to do. Since we're talking about the JAMA piece and the New York statute, and you note that this is really quite a, a radical departure for the U.S. to uh, engage in value-based pricing analysis. I mean, ISA does some things that uh, we're perhaps more familiar with in the U.K., sort of a, a you know, a light nice uh, in a uh, in a, a sense. But can you give us a little more detail on how the New York process works? Because it doesn't apply to all drugs all the time, does it? And how does it actually work? There is flexibility in terms of what the what they decide to stand to this review board in terms of so that you have to meet this overall drug spend that has to instead the cost of inflation and a sort of cushion amount. And if you do that, then you've got the ability to sort of select which high cost products that you want to review to the board. So there's a uh, already built in a great deal of discretion there. And then in terms of the actual methodology that this board would use, there's also discretion there. So it's a matter of regulations that need to be promulgated. Um, and what we've advocated is that this is a good step, but also New York needs to be quite transparent about how they're going to do this. So adopting an ICER-like framework, being clear about whether or not they're going to consider um, a, a specifically the, the per-person spend. All of these factors need to be made quite uh, transparent and need to have input from a variety of stakeholders. So you could have something that resembles in some respect an ICER, I mean, a, a NICE-like framework. But I think to get to that stage, what New York needs to do is to make sure that it has uh, considered the input from everybody who might be affected. And one other thing that I'm wondering about connecting the various parts here, because both uh, you and me and Aaron have been doing you know, just such interesting work here uh, on so many different initiatives. I'm wondering, does the switch or the eventual transition to alternative alternative payment models, APMs uh, under MACRA, such as accountable care organizations, um, other forms like that, do you think that has some promise in terms of internalizing some of these costs? Or are the reimbursement system for drugs just totally disconnected? And, and if so, does it seem as though you know, following some of Bill Sage's work on upstream healthcare, maybe the answer is to try to force more internalization of overall costing into, say, a hospital or, say, one of these alternative payment 
model uh, organization. Yeah, Frank, I, I think that is a, uh, a potential way uh, for the future. I, I think that the, the, I guess the optimal way that these kinds of uh, accountable care organizations could, could be used is if they, you know, if you, if, they, if you integrate pharmacy costs into them, now all of a sudden the uh, physician is thinking um, in addition to what care does the patient need is, you know, is also thinking about, well, how much does that, how much does that care cost and, and, and are there more cost-effective ways to get the patients the care that they need? And so, if, you know, if you integrate it in a, in a thoughtful way, um, then you can better align um, the, uh, you know, the prescriber incentives with the, um, with the, with, with the cost of, of, of the care delivery. Um, you know, as, men- as Amit mentioned at the beginning of, of, the, of the podcast, um, one of the reasons why pharmaceutical costs are, you know, have been growing at, at such a great rate and, and why, um, you know, things like uh, pharmaceutical promotion and other things have such a strong impact on, on driving, uh, prescribing towards high-cost products is because, uh, you know, a lot of physicians don't know about the cost of the drugs that they prescribe. Um, a lot, you know, they, a lot of patients have a lot of different um, uh, insurance coverages, and so, you know, they may have different costs, and it's, it's, it's a really difficult, even if a physician wanted to know, it's a really difficult thing to learn for all the different drugs, for all the different patients. And, and you know, if, this, if there were a better way of, of keeping that all within one system, within an accountable care organization, that would then also give physicians some, you know, connection to the, uh, to the ultimate uh, efficiency and effectiveness of the care that's being delivered, um, you know, that could be a very, uh, a very useful model uh, in, in terms of thinking about, uh, about trying to better marry the, you know, the, the cost of care with the, with the value of the care that's delivered. And we've seen prior efforts there in terms of driving, uh, in, in terms of accountability. Well, we've uh, avoided that sort of system by having state drug product selection laws in the case where there are gener- generic products available, sort of bypassing the physicians altogether. Um, now you've seen a little bit more work being done in the sense of nudges and behavioral economics in terms of having physicians select more cost-effective products by having certain options pop up first and larger on a prescribing system. Um, but I think that the general notion of accountability on the physician end and how you incorporate that on a broader systemic scale is going to be important because that's out of the three sort of people, payers, uh, physicians, or slash prescribers and patients, I think that we, we have we have a ways to go in terms of targeting physicians. And in terms of you know thinking ahead, um, it's just such a privilege to have both of you here because you're so well-informed about state-based initiatives, federal initiatives, international initiatives, etc. I want to bring up a couple of possibilities and then hear your thoughts on them in terms of either are things going on now to stop this or are there possibilities in the future? Is it a good idea? I, when I think about the overall discussion of drug prices, having read a lot of stuff from the Pharmaceutical Researchers Manufacturers Association, Pharma and Robert Epstein, the book Overdose and you know, other material from the industry, you usually hear two things when you hear uh, in response to efforts to limit uh, pharmaceutical spending. One is that ultimately it's just squeezing the balloon and that the money that is not being supported by the state or the state is not funding, that they're going to get that from uh, patients via co-pays 
deductibles, what, what have you, in terms of uh, the money ultimately is going to come out of the patient's uh, wallet. The second is that, you know, we will stop doing as much R&D as we used to, that we're going to cut back on R&D spending. And I'm wondering, you know, in terms of thinking about those, uh, first, I mean, I, I imagine that each of those could be exaggerated, but secondly, um, to what extent does extant law sort of protect patients from that sort of excessive billing? Could it be short off? And secondly, are there any good efforts to, say, force the maintenance of a certain amount of R&D funding in the face of, say, financial uh, economic pressures on the bottom line of the pharmacy firms. Well, yeah. So those are some of the classic rejoinders that you you hear um, when you're when you have sort of policy debates in this area. I guess I'll I'll address the second one first. So I mean, you know, it is worthwhile to recognize a, a couple things about pharmaceutical innovation and, and the sort of in the pharmaceutical market. First of all, it's worthwhile to recognize that that large pharmaceutical companies um, pull in about 22% profit margin is compared to 7% profit margins for the rest of the Fortune 500. So, you know, pharmaceutical manufacturers, uh, the, the, the industry is an extremely profitable industry. And, you know, in, in, some, case, in some cases, obviously, they contribute a, a, a great deal to, um, to uh, research and development. But, you know, they are not the source of a lot of the uh, most transformative or important drugs that come out. And in fact, uh, you know, research that we've done shows that, that, that uh, you know, in in most cases, you know, the most important drugs end up arising from publicly funded science that goes on in academic research settings or government laboratories. And, you know, ultimately, the pharmaceutical manufacturers tend to step in relatively later in the game. And then, of course, you know, contribute substantial support towards um, clinical research and, and the other trials and the, the regulatory approval process. And so are, you know, an important collaborator, but they are not the source of the of a lot of this research, the sort of the key research and development that goes on in, in, uh, around coming up with uh, with the most important innovative products. And then, of course, you have to recognize that pharmaceutical manufacturers only invest about 15 to 20 percent of their revenues in research and development, and far less than that if you actually consider innovative research and development. Most of that goes into you know brand extensions and other other research on, on already approved products. So, I mean, I think when when you hear that kind of re- response, I think you it's a it's a legitimate one, and we need to make sure that that there is a that you know. That pharmaceutical companies are are provided reasonable compensation for their investment and a, and a chance to to get uh, appropriate revenues for you know the risk that they provide and, and that they that they take on and you know certainly there are a lot of, of failures that go on and and we need to account for that and make sure that there is a reasonable market so that you know appropriate appropriate investment is supported but I, I do think that that it also needs to be taken with this sort of understanding of the larger some of these larger trends um, that suggest that there are a lot of ways um, that we can try to make, you know, spending on pharmaceuticals uh, uh, and on, on, on prescription drugs and, you know, much more efficient and effective um, and still not lose uh, that, you know, the, the, you know, the key, uh, you know, investment uh, incentives and, and, you know, make sure that it, that will allow, you know, for subsequent innovation. I don't know, Amit, if, I don't know if you had any thoughts on the first of those points or wanted to add anything else. Yeah, so to add on the second point, I would say, Frank, you asked uh, at the end, how can we drive up some of that R&D? 
spending on innovation and real innovation. And I think there's an interesting opportunity in terms of the long-term viability of the sort of strategy that you see the pharmaceutical industry doing right now, which is to derive uh, their revenue by price increases. And this is causing, like as we know, about 80% of Americans across parties to say, this is a system that needs to fundamentally change. And so I would hope that long-term investors are really taking a look at those statistics and saying, we're, we're reaching a precipice and we need to fundamentally re rejigger the system in terms of uh, how we're driving growth in the pharmaceutical industry. Rather than markups on existing products, let's, let's force more investment into R&D. And so hopefully you will see stockholders actually take uh, a more assertive response in terms of uh, long-term strategies. And then in terms of the second, well, the first question that was raised about this notion of uh, a balloon, if we lower prices here, are we going to raise prices elsewhere um, and vice versa? There is an open empirical question. And I think a lot of the, I think a powerful rejoinder to to the concern that is oftentimes raised is if you could get, uh, if pharmaceutical industries could get, uh, or pharmaceutical companies could get higher prices on their products in certain markets, uh, they would. And so will they actually, um, will it result in a balloon effect, I think is, is a highly debatable proposition. It's one that we need to be anticipating. It's one that we need to make sure systems are in place to protect patients. Um, but as for whether or not it would actually happen, I would I would question that sort of tactic, which is often raised to elicit fear in response of patients. And so um, I think that there is a very powerful message that the pharmaceutical industry has about any real major structural innovation, which is that the cures that you desire um, will suffer as a result of any change. And I think that we need to be clear about where the sources of innovation are coming from, um, and we need to do a better job of, of bottom line protecting patients and how much that they are having to pay as a result of, of these high drug prices. Listening to you, it's, um, it almost seems like we need something like the medical loss ratio legislation that we had with regard to insurers, but applied to um, pharmaceutical companies. Um, the other thought I had was, you know, we continuously, continually uh, hear these days that, you know, there aren't the blockbuster drugs coming through. We hear about the bottom line of pharmaceutical companies um, suffering uh, with the rise of uh, biosimilars. Um, in, in that environment, um, do you think there's a real shot that we could develop sort of reference price models that are used in Europe? Or there was a very interesting piece that Rachel Sachs, Nick Bagley, and Darius Lakdawalla did on the Health Affairs blog recently talking about outcomes-based pricing across, across patient populations. I guess all of these are in play. Where do you think we might be going? I think that there are a lot of ways that the uh, that the system can be made much more efficient in terms of where we put our, our pharmaceutical spending. I, I think that if there was more, you know, if we had more information about the comparative effectiveness of different drugs, um, if we knew more about how well uh, individual drugs worked uh, on real clinical endpoints, then we could make determinations about which products are, are more effective to use and direct the resources, you know, hopefully direct physician education and, and direct resources towards 
um, making sure that those products are used and that other high cost products are not used. And you know, we could uh, there are ways that you, you can better optimize use of of lower cost generic drugs and ways that we can make current spending more efficient so that we're not wasting a lot of money on the you know fifth proton pump inhibitor or the eighth statin um, and or the you know the, the TNF alpha the older expensive TNF alpha blocker when a newer less expensive version a biosimilar version is available and and by doing that then allow there to be more resources available when important new drugs like the hepatitis C drugs come along and you know not make it so that we so that patients who could benefit from this from these drugs and you know who could have their hepatitis treated and not pass it on to other people um, you know could could get access to them so I mean I think for me at least I think that that's that that's one really effective way to move forward is to try to make sure that we are um, spending our pharmaceutical uh, money in the right place and the only way to do that would be to try to encourage you know better better research and investment in in that kind of in that kind of work I don't have a lot of um, faith in uh, this so-called outcomes-based contract model of, of pharmaceutical spending um, for a lot of different reasons um, you know I think that, that those that's the that's the that's the model where um, you know the the company will set a price and then you know there'll be some evaluation of an endpoint um, some months down the road and then there will be a you know some kind of rebate provided on the on the um, based on whether or not the drug met that endpoint um, you know I think that that kind of a system is is still too too easily gamed in terms of being able to set the original price um, at a level um, taking the rebate into account and then of course the rebate the the endpoints that one will examine are, are going to are going to mostly be um, shorter term, more conveniently measured endpoints rather than the real clinical endpoints that we're um, that we're trying to uh, that we're trying to assess. So you know, for example, there were this outcomes-based contracts for um, set up for these these new cholesterol medications, which are very effective at lowering your cholesterol. But you know, studies the studies show that they don't necessarily um, reduce your heart attack level uh, to you know that much. And so they're they you know maybe they maybe they prevent um, you know a small number of heart attacks and so the companies were putting these out there with these outcomes based contracts saying look if it causes a heart attack we'll give you a refund but you know it, we're only if you only expect a heart attack in a very very small amount of people um, then you're really not going to get that much of a refund and you're not bending uh, and you're not getting uh, a lot of cost savings when in fact you could be treating these people just as well a lot of those people just as well with um, with lower cost generic products and so um, anyway I, I so it, it all got, all that goes to say is that you know I think that the way forward in, in terms of lowering prices in the in the short term is to try to figure out what the best uh, products are and and try to direct physician uh, prescribing and and education towards encouraging use of those more cost effective products um, and that I think is the best way in the short term we're going to see a big effect on uh, on on drug prices and, and pharmaceutical spending. I agree wholeheartedly with Aaron's comment about uh, the sort of problems with outcomes based pricing and I. In addition to which outcomes we'll be monitoring effectively, I'd also raise the technical difficulty of being able to monitor, um, and what infrastructure we have in place currently to do so is is uh, limited. But I would say that I think embedded in his comments is this larger notion of the uh, we have pharmaceutical companies complaining about the sort of setup in which they are in and what uh, investors want in terms of short term return 
return, um, and thus, for example, the lack of investment in central nervous system drugs because of the lengthier timeline to develop them in comparison to oncology products. And there, there's this theoretical framework of we need to recall and remember just how much are the regulations uh, that we put in place are setting up potentially perverse incentives. And as we move towards approving um, products on the basis of less evidence um, on the basis of more biomarkers. What is the sort of reaction in terms of the market and how will that steer product development? And is that the way we want to steer uh, efficient and um, development of drugs that we need uh, for public health purposes? And so I think that we have to be a little bit more conscious of the various ways in which the the rules that we're putting in place can create these perverse incentives um, and that that will be a way to reduce increase efficiency and reduce a lot of this um, spending on me too drugs uh, and uh, actually develop new cures so the bottom line i guess is what i'm saying is a higher bar um, can actually help drive the innovation we want and that's a, a message you don't actually hear a lot out there. Our time is running short, and unfortunately, I have two very difficult questions, but uh, feel free to take on one or both or neither. The first is inspired by a perusal of a book by Terry Fisher and Tala Syed uh, called Infection. It's about uh, developing drugs for the developing world and sort of the interconnection between developed world drug markets and less developed countries. And toward the end of a chapter in that book, uh, the draft book, they argue that um, parallel, import parallel importation is a big threat to regimes of price discrimination that enable the stability of the current uh, pharmaceutical industry. And I was just wondering if uh, y'all are worried about parallel importation as well or, uh, or not. The second question is, um, I'm wondering if you know, to get buy-in from the pharmaceutical industry, and perhaps just to be fair, um, is it within the current discourse of drug price reform that if some super blockbuster drugs were found, let's say, you know, a cure for many forms of common cancer um, or uh, other uh, diabetes cure or something like this, uh, maybe I'm just betraying my medical ignorance by even positing this, but... If those were to be found, is it conceivable that under a value-based purchasing regime, the percentage of GDP going to the drug industry would be higher than it is now because that value was so high? So I guess my final two uh, thoughts or questions would or go are about this question of uh, uh, importation, uh, even reimportation, and secondly, this question of the overall uh, GDP take of the drug industry. And any thoughts on those two? I think in terms of the importation question, we know that on a congressional level, there's interest in Bernie Sanders recommending possibly importation. And we know in terms of patent law, potentially the prospects of that importation in terms of the feasibility of doing it without running afoul of law um, is becoming a, a little bit more promising. And so now there is that legitimate concern of what happens in these developing markets. Um, and I think that that is a legitimate question. And again, I go back 
back to this notion of there being a lack of empirical data as for what will actually happen. Is this really a system of balloons in which uh, given one space is going to cause expansion in another? And I, I'm, I'm not yet convinced that that is the way the system, uh, that that is the correct description of, of the pharmaceutical market as a whole. Um, and so I think that we need to be prepared should something like that happen. But in terms of the rules and regulations that we put in place to ensure and drive access. But I, I again, a little bit skeptical as for whether or not that would actually happen. And maybe responding to the to the super blockbuster hypothetical. I mean, sure. I, I think that, you know, as a, as a clinician, I think that everybody would love to see uh, the kinds of, uh, of, of miracle cures that you're talking about, you know, cures for diabetes, cures for Alzheimer's disease. And you know, if those things existed um, or, or were able to be created, then um, the uh, organization or institution or or, or uh, company that that was involved with creating it would, um, you know, no doubt deserve to be you know richly rewarded for for the you know the innovation and the work it took to develop that. So you know, I, and I think that that's again that's kind of that's part of the of the process that that you know groups like ICER or NICE or in other countries. Um, or some of the other, you know, smaller um, independent organizations in the U.S. like ICER that are taking these kinds of these kinds of questions on are, are trying to assess. They're saying, look, you know, um, what is a what is a value based price for um, for this drug? And if a drug has the characteristics of a, of a kind of drug that you're that you're talking about, then uh, then it wouldn't be reasonable to think that the value based price for that product could be uh, could be pretty substantial. Um, but uh, you know, I think we'd then be stuck with the idea of trying to figure out how to pay for it but if it truly has the characteristics that you're describing then we you know as a society we should figure out a way to do that and that that I think brings us back to the question of what you know how we can try to make sure that we're not wasting money on on prescription drugs on, on spending on on high cost prescription drugs when lower cost products are available or when you know cheaper non-pharmacologic therapies are available um, that's how we try to make sure we have the resources for those uh, you know potential uh, hypotheticals if that, you know, down the road. And there could be, the, like, if there are those black does just like in the hepatitis C example, we want to encourage such innovation, clearly. But we also need to develop systems of payment that'll account for the fact that the people who pay aren't the people who are necessarily going to benefit. And how do we spread the potential payment across the various payers in those situations? Um, so there's, uh, there's, I think the notion is that we would need to develop uh, adjustments to the current system that's in place to enable the promotion of those blockbusters, but we definitely do want to encourage them. And that was the week in health law. A big thank you to Drs. Kesselheim and Sapatwari for joining us. Uh, you can find Aaron on a Twitter at A-K-E-S-S-E-L-H-E-I-M and our meet is at A-M-E-E-T-S-A-R-P-A-T-W-A-R-I. Thank you so much for joining us smart stuff Aaron and Amit thanks for having us anytime thank you we post our show notes at tool.com I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter and Mooch where can you be reached this week at Frank Pasquale on Twitter thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week <laughs>